Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 189 of Greater Than Code. I am your co-host, Rain Hendricks, and I'm here with my friend, John Sowers. Thanks, Rain. And I'm here with Artie Starr. And I'm here with Astrid County. Thanks, Artie. And I'm going to introduce our guest today, which is Deborah Barabicius. Uh, Deborah Barabicius is a physicist, TV host, and data scientist. She's the first Mexican woman to graduate with a physics PhD from Stanford University. Dr. Barabicius is the co-host of Disney's channel's Outrageous Acts of Science TV show, which started in 2012, where she uses her physics background to explain the science behind extraordinary engineering feats. She also appears as an expert on the travel channel Nova, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and numerous international media outlets. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you. It's an honor for me to be here. We don't always get a real celebrity on the show, so this is exciting for us. That is true. (laughs) The first question we often ask is, what is your superpower and how did you get it? One of my superpowers is having excellent memory, like a photographic memory. I remember entire conversations and what the person was wearing at the time and where were we. And, you know, it's just, yeah, uncanny. And people often get scared. Like my classmates growing up, I would meet them, you know, like 30 years later. And I I would be like, well, yeah. And then the time that we were in that class and you mentioned a quote by this author and they're like, oh my God, this is so scary. How could you possibly remember that? It's like the opposite of how my memory works. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have a very detail-oriented brain and my father was really strict with me about, you know, getting good grades and being good at school. And so I think I probably like became very alert of everything that was around me because I I needed to do so well otherwise like my dad wouldn't be happy and so I started remembering and and looking at every detail being super uh, observant of every minute thing which actually comes in quite handy when you're coding and you have to find a mistake in your code and I'm meticulously obsessed with uh, little details. So that means that you never had that whole I searched for three hours to find that missing semicolon moment. Well, I am the one who wants to do those things, by the way. <laughs> like, oh, who can help me find them? I can't find them. I'm like, me, me. I, I like, I, I can just glance at a code and see the semicolon that's missing. Or the oh, extra- my God. That is a superpower right there. <laughs> I, I, I do love doing that. I do. Like, I, I have fun doing taxes, doing, like, brain puzzles that require, like, memory and stuff. Yeah, I love all those crazy that people hate. <laughs> so you're a physicist and a data scientist and a TV host. Correct. What do you do in your free time? <laughs> uh, these days, I spend a lot of time with my kids, with my young kids, and I actually try to teach them science in fun ways. So for my three-year-old daughter, we have all the science books you can imagine because my husband is a physicist, and so everybody gifted us with science books because what else do you give to scientists? And so the one we, thing you already have. <laughs> exactly. And so we have like quantum mechanics for babies and thermodynamics for toddlers and you name it. <laughs> and I, I I could use quantum dynamics for babies, I think. Yeah. So. 
I might take that one up. <laughs> it's fun. And I started doing live book reviews with my daughter on Instagram. And we have tons of fun. So that's part of my free time. I did get a physics for babies book at my baby shower, which was awesome. It's oh. like, this is a ball. This is a ball with energy. It's great. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're cool. We really like an author named Ruth Spiro. It's a whole series. So she has like babies and eyesight and optics and, and aerospace engineering for babies and quarks. Wow. Baby Loves Quarks. That's my daughter's favorite book. <laughs> then I also have the Calculus for Babies, which I actually don't really like. But anyways, there, there's like a ton of books. And I just, I'm super excited because I just bought a pretty inexpensive microscope. I forget got the name of it, but I'm going to do a review of it. Basically, it's a piece of paper with a magnifying glass. And it, it's for underserved communities in general, but it costs only like 20 some dollars and you have a microscope in your hand and you can put all kinds of samples. Like the video shows them analyzing po- flower uh, pollen and all kinds of things from your backyard. And I can't wait great. from the kitchen, you know, whatever, all kinds of samples and see, you know, what we can look at with my daughter and get her excited about that. Yeah. There's a lot of data in the world today, more than ever before, and it's sort of growing exponentially. And it seems like everyone who wants to operate in the world needs to understand data to some extent. Agree or disagree? You're right. There's a ton of data in the world, and things just get more and more complex. And if we don't strive to have a general public data literacy, then, you know, it, it can really lead, lead to disasters because, I mean, just to give you an example, with COVID right now, uh, there are so many graphs and statistics that have been manipulated to show, because it became a political issue, and just to show either that the growth of the spread was not as fast as it was and whatnot. So they only show you part of the data, which is misleading, or they cut the the Y, the vertical axis, so that they manipulate what you visually see and have a gut feeling about. And if we're not educated into how to read those things and ask critical questions on what we're seeing, we're not going to be critical thinkers and the citizens will always be manipulated by uh, whatever the agenda is from political parties or marketing, advertising programs and whatnot. And so I do think it's critical, just like we want uh, literacy uh, in terms of being able to read and write. We want literacy for data, just the basics. And data literacy, we, we all often hear the name, data, the title data literacy, and we think, oh, that's for the experts. That's for the technical people. But no way, not anymore. I mean, I can tell you that we've all been in airports, right? And we've all seen uh, when you go to the restroom, there are these little machines that have smiley faces or, uh, you know, sad face all the way to a frowny face that you can signal and give feedback on what the state of the restroom is like, right? And, you know, do you have a good experience and whatnot, right? You press a button. Well, that's a data collector. And where is it going to? Well, a janitor is 
it's having to have contact with that data without being a data scientist, right? The janitor used to get a schedule for when he or she would need to clean that restroom. And that may not have been often enough. But now that janitor gets a direct data-based signal that tells them, okay, now enough people have complained, you know, frowny faces about the state of the bathroom, so please go and clean. You know, similarly, a cashier is not what it used to be. Uh, they're like collecting data, and every time they ring your purchase, that is going to a database telling the tech team what are the purchases that are most popular, what are the substitutes that people order instead of those purchases, and all kinds of data that can lead to different actions. And so I think, you know, I gave two very simple examples, but of course, data literacy goes from that level all the way to the data scientists who are like, you know, in the cutting edge, looking at new tools and technologies to bring back to the company so they, they can develop uh, improved algorithms for, you know, whatever their goal is. So I do think data literacy is important, especially Forrester did an analysis and uh, it showed that 80% of jobs by 2030 are going to be affected by automation or some kind of digital data transformation. So if we're not prepared for that, uh, we are going to be in real bad shape. Yeah, and I like the example of the the janitor because it's not just something that affects people that work at tech companies or people in data science departments or scientists. It, it comes down to how you understand how a disease is progressing in your community. Like the number of log scale charts I've seen about COVID that like you, I didn't notice until I read the fine print that it's log scale. I'm like, oh, it's not so bad. Oh, no, this is terrible. And just the fact that it wasn't called out or that it was used as some sort of default or like I don't, I, it may not even be intentional manipulation, but it's just that poor presentation of data is now like it, it really impacts the real world. Thank you, John. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think at best it could be a mistake in how we people graph things, but at worst, it can be intentionally deceiving. And that is really dangerous. In the case of COVID, it could even mean life or death, because if we don't take the right steps that the data is uh, informing us on, then, you know, we may lead to many more uh, cases that could have been prevented. So in terms of the first step to take towards data literacy, especially for somebody who maybe finds like statistics overwhelming and, and sees all the different charts as just another form of you know, misinformation or another way to just manipulate people. What do you suggest as their first step so that they can start to have a little more ownership of their, of what it is that they take in and how they process that? Sure. I give that workshop. It's called statistics and the art of deception. And, you know, statistics is a pretty dry field. I would say very few people have fun in their, like, intro to statistics courses in college. And I don't blame them because it's taught in a dry way without, like, fun examples. And it hasn't really been transformed. And and, and that's that's a shame because it's really a very, very important field and, and topic to understand. So, yes, I would start with educating people with examples on 
the news and, and on TV and marketing examples of, of when people have made these very physical uh, mistakes or intentional deception graphs. And so I think it's called vertical measures or I'll get the, the actual URL for you, but it's, it's this great blog that shows examples. For example, correlation is not causation, right? A lot of people think that because two things move together similarly uh, over time, then they're related one. And secondly, a stronger uh, statement is one must be causing the other. And that could not be further from the truth. In fact, they have all these beautiful graphs. I saw one the other day. I think it was the price of margarine was highly correlated, meaning it moved in time very much like the rate of divorce in Maine. And so obviously to any skeptical person, this is ridiculous. Like they, they are moving together by chance because there is no such thing as margarine in any world causing the divorce rate to go up, right? Uh, or mar margarine consumption. And so, but however, that those are, are graphs meant for people to laugh because they're so obviously, you know, not correlated because of a, a particular factor. They just by chance happen to be moving in similar ways. And so I think when you see those examples and statistics can actually become quite fun. And you do experiments. Statistics, we don't think of it as an experimental science, but I very much like it when, you know, you get the students to stand up in class and move around and create samples. Okay, like, uh, you know, everybody that uh, is a flat earther, go to that corner and everyone else go to that other corner. And they start seeing how to form statistical samples, why it's so important to have a diversity of opinions, and that translates to how we create our algorithms for them to be not biased or as little biased as possible, because there, there's no such thing as an algorithm that's not biased. But we, you know, we try to relate those intuitive things that we get from playing with statistics to how the data products that we use today, like Uber, Waze, Google Maps, Yelp, etc., how they are created and what biases are behind them. So just to answer to your question, I'm happy to work with people in giving that workshop or, you know, we at Metis have a d data literacy course that we offer that's really good. And just reading and trying to get acquainted with the basics of data literacy. What is a data product? What assumptions does the model that it's using uh, have that I should know about? And what are the typical applications of this? And what can I do with it, these data? What are, what are the insights that are going to be helpful for me? Just asking those four questions, I think, would be greatly beneficial as a starting point. I'm reminded a little bit of some of the current problems with reproducibility in social sciences and some of the correlations in these studies that are supposedly statistically significant. You know, when the news publishes these results, they say, oh, you know, drinking red wine cures cancer. And then it turns out that there are a whole bunch of dots everywhere. And it's, if you draw the line, it's like barely moving in one direction. You know, and, and these things where actually the correlation is incredibly small, like the effect, if it exists, is incredibly small. And then it's, it's sensationalized, you know, by the media. You know, you just said basically one of the most frustrating aspects of scientific illiteracy today. 
And that is that people think that science is about facts. And remember that data science has the word science in it. So we forget sometimes that uh, it uses the scientific method. So when I say science, I'm also referring to the topics that we study with data science. So when people see a scientific study telling them, you know, use your mask or else you're going to be more at risk of contracting COVID. And then the next week they see another article from Europe saying, no, do not use your mask. Then you get to comments and an attitude that's anti-science, you know, in the public. And very much just like what you said, you know, examples of do coffee or wine is good for you. Oh, no, coffee and wine are the the greatest uh, stressors to the body the next week, right? So what do we do with these conflicting facts? And people get very frustrated and they say things such as, why should I trust scientists? They change their mind all the time. It's not that. What we fail to see is that the scientific method is designed so that you come closer and closer. And it's a series of iterations to come increasingly closer to the truth. Now, when we gain more evidence, we add it to the study. And that's why our minds change, because we were able to consider one more factor. Or we were able to get rid of factors that were not the direct cause of that phenomena. So while the goal is to arrive at a fact, it doesn't mean that uh, it's immutable in those steps. It means that our opinion on, on things, which is evidence-based, is informed by new data. And changing our mind is actually a sign of openness and dealing with information in an intelligent way. People Sometimes uh, the masses think that scientists should just have one very fixed opinion and never change it, but it couldn't be further from the truth. Scientists are the people who should change opinion the most because we're constantly discovering new things and new data. And if we train the public to expect, you know, somebody who has a steady opinion about, you know, how coffee affects us or what not without changing their mind when new data comes in, then that is definitely not a good scientist and then we're in trouble. And so I, I think that's a very, very important thing, what you just said. Like we really need to know that uh, science itself is about coming closer and closer to the truth by bringing new models and new data in and discarding stuff that we see is no longer an important factor. Yeah, I think that ties in with the sort of popular concept of the, and this shows up in fiction, it doesn't show up in, in actual science, of, of the fact of, of an experiment being a failure. Because it's only a failure if you've got absolutely no information out of that experiment, which is pretty rare. But the popular thought of it is that either it confirms your thing or it's a failure. Um, and that, unfortunately, I think is is pretty common for people who have not done science. John, thank you for saying that. That's very smart. Like, I can't tell you how many people got their PhDs out of a failure. And by failure, I mean a negative result. Uh, you know, I was at Stanford and one of our professors, Blas Cabrera, uh, his whole career, he had been looking for the magnetic monopole, meaning like one magnetic charge. And there isn't such a thing. But at one point in his career, he thought he discovered it. And they were about to publish and they told everyone and it was you know, very kind of sad and funny at the same time, but he eventually, they reproduced the experiment and it wasn't true and there's no magnetic monopole. 
A lot of people could say, wow, what a failure. No, on the contrary, he saved a bunch of research uh, from many different scientists because he knew that his negative result was, in fact, incredibly important for us to have a clear picture of what happens with the electromagnetic forces. So, yes, negative results are very important. This brings me to education again, because there's a great psychologist at Stanford by the name of Carol Dweck, and she wrote a book called Mindset about the difference in education of of boys with girls and having to do with failure, John, what you just said, because the way we condition boys is to not love failure, but to be okay with it. You know, the the growth mindset is all about having a flexible brain that can grow in knowledge. And even if you're not, not an expert right now, try and try again until you become an expert in whatever you desire. And, and that's typically, you know, how boys are brought up. And so they, they take risk, risks. They take classes where they're not already good at the topic. And uh, they experience failure. However, they don't take it personal or they don't, It's sort of ingrained in the process that failure is a good thing. However, Carol Dweck states that the way we encourage women to pursue their their educational path is more with a fixed mindset, meaning you have a fixed amount of intelligence that cannot grow and stretch. And so you better stay doing the things that you're already good at, which are going to be fewer because, of course, if you don't gain new skills, you stay with the ones that people already praise you for. And that creates people who, especially in the sciences and in data science, feel very inadequate and have an imposter complex many times because data science and science is all about failing many times. The, the, the successful data scientists are the ones that after failing to find something with that one model, they try a different one, and then they fail again, and they try a different one, and so on and so on, until they find the one that gives them the right information. If you don't have a growth mindset, and you're not used to practicing failure for the greater positive success, then you're going to uh, not pursue those fields. And and that's a really sad thing, because many Many people, uh, if they tried it, they would fall in love with doing data analysis. I think your point, Debbie, about growth mindset is is really important. I was reading something actually this morning on Medium, and it was about a woman who's, she's now an oncologist, but she was recounting when she first started college. And she went to Brown, and she had actually gotten accepted into uh, a joint undergraduate and medical school appointment. And in her first chemistry class that she took, her first test, she got a C. And when she went to talk to her guidance counselor, which was like a mandatory thing, the guidance counselor questioned whether or not she could pursue her undergraduate degree and asked her about, you know, what is it your plans are? And she had told him, you know, I want to be a doctor. And he questioned whether or not she would be able to make it as a doctor not knowing that she had already been accepted to medical school. But his response to her made her question herself. And she ended up not pursuing her MD after she finished. And she went and got a master's in public health. And only after working as a, a while in that field and meeting other women, um, especially in her case, other black women who encouraged her, she went back to medical school. But she was talking about how, you know, for her, she... She had never had a C before. It was a shocking moment for her. 
it was her first year and first semester in college. But also uh, the response that she was getting from people who seemed to be authority figures in the in the area made her question, you know, these things that I thought I could be good at, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I can't be good at those things. And it seems like a lot of people also have that experience of, you know, they want to try to do something that they've never done before. And then they get shut down by someone who seems to be an authority figure, maybe unintentionally, but just asking questions a certain way, but sometimes intentionally. And I think that we talk a lot about um, things that individuals can try to do to make sure that they continue to succeed. But it seems like there's also a need for us to start to be more cognizant of our systems that we build around these things so that people can try again and people can fail. And Because one of the things she, she talked about was it would have been nice to have the option of having a mistake and not been dismissed. That she needed to be able to, you know, go through something but still have the option on the other side not to be excellent at every step. And I know with programming, this is a big thing, especially... Uh, people like me who switched into this field, not started out this way. The first thing you think is, oh, my gosh, look at all these people. They're so good. I, I can't be and do what they do. I don't know how I'm going to keep moving. And there are a lot of people who do try to encourage you. But one of the bigger hurdles a lot of people come up with is when they get on their first programming team. And then they have that whoever coder who's like, I don't even know why you're here. I wish that you could not touch my code. I don't even want to do your code review because it's so awful. You know, how to keep going and how to find uh, other communities of people who will encourage you. Because it seems like in general, in the sciences, this is a reoccurring issue of, I want to do this, I'm trying, and then I get all this pushback, and now I don't know what to do next. Wow, Astrid, great story. And I can't tell you how much I resonate with it. I, I can share that when I was growing up in Mexico City, I experienced the same type of bias and just lack of confidence in my own skills because I was told by every teacher, every classmate, even my own parents that loved me very much said, you know, you, when I, I said I want to study physics and math, I'm very curious. They said, oh, you know, it's not very appropriate for a girl and, and you don't have the skills, said people in school, because you need to be a genius in order to study physics. And I had very good grades, but it's still, you know, it was not enough. And they said, you know, you better study something more feminine, like uh, marketing or something else, even though I was not interested in the least. And how many women have I heard from? that actually end up studying marketing or law or whatnot because they were too embarrassed to get the experiment and get that C once, twice, three times, but then go on to succeed in science. And so I always tell the women I mentor that if I was able to do it, anybody can do it. I had like lack, lack of confidence and very few people believed that I could do it and I was able to do it. So it's all about perseverance. And more than that, it's about knowing that you should get up and pursue your dream no matter what. Even if you fail once, you keep going and going. And I tell you, you build a thick skin because I recall when I was in the PhD program, when my colleagues would call their parents and say, oh, I'm so upset, I'm depressed, I didn't pass the exam. A lot of the parents would tell them, well, you know, don't worry, your father, who also has a PhD and is a professor, went through the same thing. 
keep going. It's just one little failure, but you should just keep going. But when I would call home and I was depressed about not doing well in an exam, I would get the, the, well, we told you this is not good for you. Pack your bags, come back and live a normal life. And it almost made me want to do it even more. And I have met the people who succeed in life are the ones that have that strength, not necessarily the innate talent, although that's important too, but it's that perseverance that gets you to the end. Yeah, I, I do find it somewhat tragic, I guess, that, that that sort of perseverance is required, that you have to fight so many headwinds in order to get there. And then the further twist of the knife that once you get there, once you get into that college program, once you fight against all of that pressure, then you have to be perfect the whole time because any failure is going to be used as evidence against why you should be there in the first place. Or you get into that CS weed out course that's just horrible and like then you have to further summon your personal energy to fight through that and to pick yourself up off the ground. I mean, it's it's just really heartbreaking that 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 much mental fortitude is required to do something that's already somewhat hard, you know, inherently. So like it would be great if we could find a way to stop that from happening. I couldn't agree more. And also, you know, we we know that human performance is contextual. It's ecological it has to do with with environments it has to do with a lot more than just what's up here and so if someone gets a c the question isn't you know why weren't they smart enough the, the real question is what was their environment like that they didn't get the support they needed or you know the grades people get don't seem to be very well correlated with things like intelligence they seem to be more correlated with things like you know does the professor like you and help you when you ask for help. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, we went through that when we were at Stanford and at some point we were two women out of 34 people in our class. And there was one woman before us. I think she was one class above us and she had not passed a qualifying exam, which allows you to continue to do the PhD. And she had left Stanford. And at one point, when we also had issues with the qualifying exam, we went and asked, uh, why is it we investigated that women tend to have more problems passing the qualifying exam and end up having to leave the program after, you know, just claiming a master's degree? And we were told that physics departments uh, were male dominated in the US and will continue to be. Uh, which we later, you know, complained about that statement. But what was interesting was that the environment in which we took that qualifying exam was really stressful. And who knows? Maybe if they research it, it could be that it was simply more stressful for women. I remember it took two days and we were in a basement where there was no light. And I remember we didn't even have chairs. It, it was like a bench, like a lab bench. It was quite uncomfortable. We were fed pizza at lunch just you know a couple of slices and then the whole day we were solving uh these really complex problems for for two days saturday and sunday and who knows i i bet you we could do research that some people i'm not saying it's gender related but some people just do not react well to that kind of stressful environment when they have to do a test 
I also noticed that there's also a wider context involved too, which is not just the context of having the test right there, but also the context of what happens in your life while you are doing your PhD program. If you have enough support that you can have a quiet apartment where you can actually get a good night's sleep, these are all going to be affected by your socioeconomic status as well as your gender and race as well. And so like, there's so many of these factors that are going to tie into that. We've also got this world that is completely changing right now. And what we've done and always done, you know, for, I say always, but for, you know, some amount of time, we've had these institutions and structures around education and sort of this recipe for how you're supposed to engage with the world where these, there's these career opportunities that have these certain labels and you're supposed to, you know, figure out, well, what do I want to do with my career and fit myself into this system of cogs, right? Like we've had this idea that, you know, this is how the economy is supposed to work, that this is how education is supposed to work because it's been sort of this, you know, system that we've grown up with. And now everything's kind of like disruption, right? And so we think back to these fundamentals around science and discovery and what is it that actually matters in life what is it we want to do while we're here this time on our planet what is it we want to discover there's something fundamentally human about discovering new things and pursuing knowledge right of what it means to be a scientist and it's not about this fitting a cog in a machine it's about that experience right of of discovery and i feel like with this disruption with you know education and all of these things getting back to those fundamentals such that we can recreate new different sorts of things that are more anchored in these fundamental first principles of what it means to be a human among humans to pursue knowledge to try and make the world a bit better place while we're here. Like, I feel like we need to get back to our roots and get back to like, you know, really basic things in terms of human relationships and discovery and, you know, remembering why we're even here doing any of this stuff. It's all a big uh, hamster wheel, right? (laughs) With this sort of disruption, I'm, you know, thinking back to what are the reasons you became a scientist to begin with. Like, what inspired you to go down this path? I was always a very inquisitive child, and I would ask questions all the time. And my father uh, was a civil engineer, so he was somewhat technical, and he would take me on road trips to hydraulic dams that he was working on. And he would always explain the bridges and the forces on, on the columns and how they were constructed and I was always fascinated by that and I would ask lots of questions and then I I remember that I liked David Bowie and there was this uh, guy in school who was very strange and he he was just into physics and I already in my mind my heroes were obscure scientists like Tycho Brahe was a Danish astronomer who is said to have lost his nose in a duel because he was quite antisocial. And I said to myself, because everybody made me believe that I wasn't going to be socially accepted if I studied physics. So I said, okay, I'll be like Tycho Brahe, maybe. I'll be, you know, locked up 
in a tower or in an observatory, but at least I'll have my observations with me. And so I think I just thought that I was this strange person that really cared about how the world works. And it was this insatiable thirst to know why things happen the way they do. And the more I read these books, uh, the more they became guiding lights, so to speak, in my path. And I, I don't really know because I didn't have a role model growing up. It was just this one person that liked physics and we liked the same music. And I just said, oh, wow, what is this about? And I fell in love with it. It's interesting how relationships affect us. Like I've, I found like in different relationships, a different side of me will come out and then I'll see a new side of myself and then I'll be like, I'm really cool. I like this side of me. And, and, you know, even if the relationship ends up ending, sometimes just that experience and interaction, we end up falling in love with a new side of ourselves and discovering, you know, our, uh, these new passions and, and things we get excited about. And what I'm hearing too is a certain resilience that you built around this pursuit in this, this character that you were becoming and being different then when you could kind of put yourself in the shoes of, well, that's fine. I'll just be locked up in a tower and, you know, you could construct a narrative of coolness and individuality with your identity, such that even in the face of all of these challenges that come up, you know, that having that resilience of that character, even if it was like this outcast weirdo character, gave you power and resilience and being able to hold up to whatever, you know, those, uh, you know, differing opinions were and go, that's fine, I'll just do my cool, unique thing. And that's, you know, it's great. I mean, I think those kind of things are important with respect to, resilience and having our own sort of self-love loop. And sometimes I, I think it's sometimes that often happens through a relationship with someone else and falling in love with, you know, this, this aspect of ourselves is a great story too. I have this book on my shelf called your story is your power, which I haven't read yet. So I can't really talk about that book, but it, it sounds kind of similar to what you're talking about already. But also um, I did read, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, which I thought was a really great title because her whole book is really about creating herself in these different situations. And it started me thinking about um, some of what you brought up, but also this idea that we separate career from ourselves. Like, I'm going to pursue a career and then I'm a different person instead of thinking about it as an expression of who we are. And as a, a means of us being able to experiment with who we are in the world and thinking about it that way makes it a little bit easier, I think, to try things that you haven't tried before. If you're thinking about how you may want to grow as a person, um, but I also think it allows you to give a more authentic version of yourself when you are doing your work. And I think that alone can be really inspirational for other people who are looking for, you know, I don't know where I fit. Um, I love what you said, Debbie, about like there's this weird person and they like physics. So I think maybe I could like physics because I feel weird. I think there's a lot of people who they feel off. They don't think that they have like a particular peer group and they're trying to find like some sort of beacon of, well, what do I do with that? And I think a lot of us are kind of just going about our life as a separate thing from the work that we're pursuing. And so it makes it even harder to try to figure out if you are that person you know, well, what looks like me or feels like me 
So maybe the more that we start to kind of merge these worlds of what we do for our work and why we do that work and then who we think we are, uh, the more that other people can start to see themselves as well. And that might result in a world where people are actually a lot more closer to the thing that they want to do, like the impacts that they want to make. Because uh, when we were having this discussion about, you know, science and how it can be exclusionary, I think the sad part about that is it is one of the best ways to try to learn new things about who you are too. It's to, is to use that same process of I'm going to test something and see how it goes. And even if it doesn't work out the way that I thought, I can still learn something about, you know, what I, what I am, what I like, keeping that as like a separate category as, you know, there are scientists who do that. And then there's other regular people. Uh, means that the average person who may not see themselves as a scientist doesn't realize that that's a thing they could be doing. And that science is a, it's a living, breathing action. It's not a thing. It's not a thing you become. It's a thing that you are, like how writers are people who write. Yeah. You know, <laughs> scientists are people who do experiments and find and have inquisitive na- notions about the world that they investigate. And I think if we could do a little bit more of like making that obvious and not so you know, behind walls and only with certain degrees. And then I think maybe some people would have a little more access as well. Right. Yes. I would kind of like to talk a little bit about the TV show because that's super cool. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I didn't like about academic physics is that I had to perform all the experiments through all nighters and weekends. And I had very little contact with the outside world for months. You know, I would just see my lab colleagues if I saw them when I wasn't doing the experiment myself. So if you're a sociable person like me, then it can be a little bit isolating. And so I recall when I had the opportunity, I had a a teacher friend, uh, my friend Amanda, in the Silicon Valley, and she was a teacher. She said, come to my school and teach, you know, first or second grade level kids what it is like to be a scientist. And a lot of the kids she was teaching were from Mexico originally, and they had never seen a scientist, let alone a woman and a woman from Mexico. So it was really inspiring because, they, you know, they went back home and they told their parents that this was an available option for them. And then I spoke to the parents in Spanish, and, and they got really excited because they had really thought that a scientist was not only impossible to access, but it was something that they shouldn't learn because uh, it was impossible to make a living and uh, they were very boring professionals wearing a, a, a robe and being stuck in a lab. And when I showed them that uh, not only there were that there were many career options after studying science, but that and that they were quite profitable if that was uh, their interest but that also it was a fascinating field and I showed them I created a program called the science of everyday life where I would film myself explaining the science of daily things like the physics of high heels uh, the the chemistry in the kitchen and uh, you know a bunch of stuff and I was writing in the Stanford newspaper and I had so much fun building a bridge between complex concepts and 
lay uh, and entertaining ways of explaining things that I just thought, this is my calling. This is what I want to do. Yes, I want to continue to do complex science, but I love, I, I get such a kick out of explaining those complex concepts. So fast forward, I moved to New York and somebody, I started tweeting and somebody uh, in the early days uh, in 2006, I believe, uh, said, hey, Oprah Winfrey wrote in her magazine that she's looking for women to participate in her Women in Leadership Conference. So I sent my project and it was called The Science of Everyday Life. The Oprah people that read it really liked it. So I was invited to participate at the conference. And more than that, my project got selected to be presented at the as a keynote speech. And so I remember Gail King was there and 80 women that had been selected who were all leaders in their field and had great ideas for projects. It just inspired me so much. And I could see the impact I could have. Uh, with other people in the world. And so for the first time, I felt useful not only to my colleagues in physics, but to the rest of the world. Dr. Oz invited me to his show. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to make physics the most fun and fascinating topic. And even Oprah is going to love it. And even, you know, everyone's mother is going to, you know, now care about the physics behind the makeup they're using or, or, or the, cars they're driving, the gadgets they're buying. And so I set as a goal to create more videos and more media content describing how fun and how incredibly fascinating physics is. And at one point, somebody said, hey, they're looking for women physicists under 35 years old who live in New York and that want to be on camera. I don't know how many of those were there. Maybe I was the only one, but... Like all three of you showed up. Yeah, so I showed up to this audition, which was incredibly stressful because they put me in front of a camera. I was sweating bullets. I had to answer questions like, okay, if... There's a guy that gets run, o- run over by eight trucks and he does, he survives. He doesn't break anything but like one rib. How does he survive and how would you prove that with one experiment? It turns out it was a crazy show called Humanly Impossible. I don't know if nobody else wanted to be on it or what, but the next day, even though I thought I did terrible in the interview, they called me and they said, you're in. They didn't pay me a penny and I had to, you know, take two weeks to film this show. I would take the subway to Brooklyn, uh, to this studio where we would film and it was incredible. I met a blind man who used uh, echolocation, making sounds to map his surroundings and know and he could ride a bicycle in between cars and he could play basketball in front of us and make more baskets than I ever could it was just fascinating and then you know because of this physics principle and then uh, one guy uh, jumped from 30 feet into a shallow pool of water and survived and another guy was uh, named Nipolini and he's become quite famous and he basically carried a bunch of weight with rings attached to his nipples and anyways I was explaining the science behind all these crazy feats that crazy people were doing I remember I was always following the emergency medical doctor because I I was so nervous every time that something was going to happen anyways the show was a great success 
And from there, I realized, wow, this is incredible because it generated a lot of fans writing to me. I provided my email and stuff, and they would write to me to ask questions. And so now I saw that TV had a great impact. And from then, one day I got a, a, a call uh, by a friend that said, hey, there's another show in the UK looking for female physicists. And I said, I'm in. And I remember memorizing a script for it and reading it. And I had, I was alone in my apartment. I was single. I didn't have even friends who would like help me film it. And so I put my Android phone in some furniture and filmed myself with bad lighting and following this script, I had to explain what a trebuchet was, which is this machine that can throw cars for very long distances. And I had to learn what it was. And so I had, you know, I I was scared about my English not being my first language and my accent and not being able to remember the details and the numbers. At one point, I was fed up. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it from memory from what I already read. I'm not going to be stiff. I grabbed a glass of wine. I drank it. I pulled a lamp underneath my face. Like I changed the whole life. And I just went with my heart. And I was much more passionate about even if I might have gotten some of the concepts wrong. I don't think I did. But, you know, I just kind of like relaxed and went with my passion as opposed to, you know, only trying to be perfect again. And two weeks, I didn't hear from them. And after that, they got back. They're like, you're in. And it became the show that I currently co-host titled Outrageous Acts of Science by the Discovery Channel. It's an international show. And it was the number one show on the Science Channel, which is the channel that broadcasts it in the U.S. And it has been a blast. Uh, We get together once every three months to film more episodes And we basically are given a bunch of videos where people are shown uh, doing crazy things. And we are seven scientists that explain from different perspectives the science behind all these crazy engineering feats. And it's edited in a very cool and engaging way. And uh, it can be watched on iTunes, Amazon Prime and YouTube. And it's really a wonderful show. We have 11 seasons of it out. Wow. I love that story because you can tell that it seemed like once you figured out what you loved, that as long as you focused on that, all these other amazing things came to you. Yes. The other thing that really stood out to me was when you were able to connect your knowledge with your passion. Yes. You know, it wasn't enough to just know the stuff. Exactly. You had to find a way to be authentic. Yes. I like that. I I did have a question actually from a bit earlier on when you were talking about finding ways to explain complex concepts. And so my question is, how do you approach that? Because I was a person for whom things didn't just come easily, I think I know what it's like to not understand the concept. So even when I'm studying physics and I'm reading uh, you know, a string theory book or something quite complex. I argue with my husband about the very 
basics of it. We always go back to the basics, whereas a lot of people don't need to. But I find the need to really dig in and see where does this theory come from? What were the assumptions that they made and why and why are they okay? And really like go back to the basics. I studied my PhD with a Nobel Prize winner, Bob Laughlin, and he's amazing. And the reason why he got the Nobel Prize due to the fractionary quantum Hall effect is because he went back to the basics, even though he was quite lucid in physics and an amazing professor, he felt the need to go back and just retreat from society for a while and really just derive things in different ways. And that's why he came up with that theory. So I think I learned from him that it's quite useful to do that. So what I do whenever I'm going to explain something for TV or for a company that I'm doing a, a workshop for or a training in data science, I go back to the very basics. How would a baby, how would a toddler, how would my mom look at this graph? How would she experience this? Where would her eyes set on this slide? And how can I make it more simple? And I actually test it. I go and I ask people that have nothing to do with data science, is this concept clear? What what else, what kinds of questions uh, come up in your mind that I can explain better? And I go lower and lower and lower level until I, I feel like I've mastered the very basic pieces of what forms a complex concept. So then I prepare the path, this logical path that starts, okay, from the very basics, you know, this is what mechanics does. And then, you know, you go on to build that, you add that in and you add this other data. And this is how the concept comes about. And I think people really appreciate it because nobody's talking down to them. They're actually uh, sort of going with me in that journey of discovery that I myself went through in order to understand this complex theory. And so the similar questions are popping up in their head and I have the answer for them right away. I love that because it makes it feel like even for people who've been doing this for a while, it's that first step of really understanding the core concepts that makes it you know, possible for you to understand, possible for you to teach it. So that makes it feel like it's possible for someone who's new to be able to feel like they can be a part of that world because it's not going to take them you know years and years and years just to be able to have a conversation exactly and astrid uh you just reminded me when you're que you question about coding uh, of something that i'm a big proponent of teaching coding as a tool and not as a means as a means to an end and not just as coding for coding itself I think the mistake that people are doing these days is there's so many coding programs out there that are just built to learn the very basic and superficial aspects, the mechanics of coding without knowing that it's just a tool to discover, to solve problems, to gain insights and whatnot, that in a rush to get everyone, all the kids to code, they're forgetting why we're doing it. And and I give you an example. I went once to the Museum of Natural History and they had a program for underrepresented communities. It was an afternoon program where mostly young women were learning how to code. And when I was talking to them, they were really smart girls and they had been working with SQL and knowing how to query this database in the museum. And they were so proficient at it. I was very impressed. And I was even jealous, thinking I, I wish I had that opportunity at, at their age. And then I go to one group who was using these tools to study the museum's turtles. 
And then I saw a column on the data had the title of weight. And the numbers were 100, 250, 300, but it had no units. And so I asked the girls, oh, so how big are the turtles that you're studying? They said, oh, they fit in the palm of our hand. You know, we've held them before. I said, wow. And so what are, what are these numbers of, you know, the weight? Is it in kilograms? Are they in pounds? You know, what is weight in? And they said, they all of a sudden f- fell silent, even though they had been working with this data for three months and they were great at manipulating all these query terms in SQL, they had forgotten or they had no clue what these, until one girl lifts her hand and says, oh yeah, I know, I know, I think it's pounds. And I said, oh wow, that's a little odd because I myself, you know, a regular sized woman and I weigh, I don't weigh 200 pounds, I'm like around 120, 130 pounds. And you're telling me that these little turtles that fit in the palm of your hand weigh up to 300 pounds, like double my size. Wow, that's really odd. And then they all realized what they were saying and how it did not make any sense. And eventually, you know, we talked to one of the teachers and they, they said, oh, it's it's actually grams. The, the weight is in grams. And I was like, oh, okay. And that was an illustrative experience because it taught me that in our rush to teach all these young people how to code, we had forgotten that code is to solve problems and that the best thing we can teach them is how to think critically about the world. That is how to know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it and what the purpose of it is and what the code's goal is. And they failed to respond to that. And so I think We should absolutely add critical thinking as one of the essential skills before we want them to master the details of coding. Yeah, I just want to highlight one thing that you you mentioned there, which is so these girls didn't remember what the unit was. And one interpretation might be, oh, well, these girls are stupid. But the important interpretation that gets back to human performance and how it's not just about individuals is they were taught in a way that they didn't remember. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely can tell you that these women were bright as can be. They were very, very intelligent and performed coding in a way that maybe few people can do only three months. They were very bright. But it's more that they're not taught about caring why they're doing it. All that they, the message they received is be incredibly good at coding and give me the result I want. But they weren't taught about thinking about the whole problem and the vision, you know, the bird's eye view. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? What is it for? Who is going to use these results? You know, all of those big questions that we need to teach people how to ask, because maybe the algorithm would change if they knew that uh, they were going to analyze small turtles. Maybe there are different assumptions that they would make rather than... Huge turtles, right? Yes. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think those girls were stupid. I don't, also don't think a woman who gets a C on her first physics exam is stupid. You know? Right. Like, well, I think um, it's partly like this whole break. We've broken everything into such small pieces that we don't really talk about big concepts anymore in the beginning. Like, with this assumption that if we give you all the little pieces, you will eventually get this big concept. But I know, like, for me, I'm the type of person where I want to understand why I'm doing it first. Because if I understand why I'm doing it, then I'm motivated to do all the little things it may take for me to get there. 
Uh, but if you give me a bunch of little pieces, then I don't really always know what to do with all the little pieces. And so it becomes really easy to get kind of lost in the weeds and then not really be able to understand, you know, well, if I, why do I need this or should I use this? I don't know. It, it makes it appear as though you're yeah. not capable or you're not intelligent. Uh, but really the truth is there's not like a map that you have already laid out of these are the steps I'm taking to get to this end point, which sure. is really what, what you're talking about, Debbie, like the critical thinking, the problem solving, like the big, here is a big nasty problem. Yes. What are we going to do? What are the first, second, third things you're going to think about? What are the steps you're going to take to test and see, is this going to work or is there something better? Yes, you can use code to do that, but you have to understand that that's what you're doing. You're not just writing beautiful code. Yeah. I think one of the other problems is that, and I think this is especially true of, of software engineers, is that we're trained to go down and in. We're trained to drill down, to look closer, to, you know, get to, to the, the tiniest detail to figure out what the problem is, when actually what you often have to do is go up and out and look more holistically, like you were saying, Astrid, at the problem. And this actually is something that ends up biting software engineers because when they start to become more senior, they need to be able to take this more holistic view of the work they're doing. I mean, it's good all the time, but it's one of the things that, that gets you promoted, you know, when you get to the higher levels of, of being an individual contributor. True. It's also one of the reasons why, so lately I've been like reacquainting myself with learning programming again because I don't have to do it in my job right now but it's something I enjoy doing but I want to like find a better way to do it for me and one of the ways that I have found that's been helpful is to think about it more like being an artist rather than being a scientist uh, because being a scientist you know you are trying to break things down to their smallest level and often trying to understand it at that little bitty granular place uh, but if you're an artist you have a bigger goal usually. So you're, you're using whatever your medium is. So if you think of like programming as a medium to create something mm -hmm. and how that gets created can be multiple ways because it depends on, you know, what your process is. But the outcome is really what you're trying to get to. You're trying to get to, I, I want this to live in the world and I may go about it in different ways, but the goal is this other uh, bigger thing that's bigger than me usually has a, a deeper meaning there's a purpose to it it kind of has an end when I when it reaches its goal sort of thing which I know that for me it's been really helpful to think about programming more like being an artist like this is I'm, I'm trying to create a work and I'm going to use programming to do that so now let me start thinking about how I go about solving all the little problems so I can actually create something very cool approach I like it. And it also makes me feel special when I do it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Are we at, like, reflection time, you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I can go first. Debbie, when you were talking about breaking down concepts and building a bridge to connect with the, the people who are trying to learn, I... I was thinking about Gordon Pask's theory of learning, which he calls... Uh, conversation theory. And the sort of basic idea there is that learning isn't transferred. So I don't like take something out of my brain and drop it into yours. It's constructed. So this is a constructivist theory. And specifically the way it's constructed is that you first build a bridge sort of from both sides of the bank towards the center 
you know, I'm trying to reach you and you're trying to reach me. And then this is where this metaphor sort of falls apart. Once you get there, you build up together towards what someone's trying to learn. You're taking them with you and you're, you know, you're building together. Very cool. The formal parts of this theory talk about like what the process of finding common ground looks like and so on. But I like the analogy too. I think the thing that really stuck with me was thinking about science and this process of discovery and problem solving and how easy it is to get lost in all the details of the things we do and start taking all this data to mean whatever it is we want it to mean. And, you know, we we talked about all these things kind of going off the rails and yet at the same time, there's this fundamental thing that is anchoring everything of critical thinking and problem solving. And all of these things are a means for some purpose. And as long as we kind of shift to this mode of operating that we only need to know the how to things and we, we teach the how to things um, in absence of that context, we're always going to be kind of tumbling down this rabbit hole of challenges that come with trying to teach the how without teaching the why. And that story of just what initially inspired you, Debbie, to become a scientist and become a physicist and that passion and curiosity, you just lit up like a Christmas tree. It was, it was <laughs> fun to just see that inspiration and excitement in you and being able to teach that and help others to find that inspiration and stuff in themselves through the work you do is, um, is a beautiful thing. Maybe you can help others to find their story and their power and their passion and to, and to pursue their dreams. Okay. I think the thing that most stuck out to me is Debbie, when you were telling us different stories, like your curiosity as a child and the tenacity you had to have going through your PhD program. And then, you know, realizing that you didn't only want to do academic work, you wanted to be more sociable, that it seems like your, I guess, like perseverance and just trying to be your, you know, weird self, as you called yourself, seems to be the thing that's catapulted you to all these different levels in your life and in your career. And that the more that you kind of were authentic about that, that, you know, I like this, I want to do this, or... I, I do like this, but I don't only want to be, you know, in this basement lab. I want to be out there with people. That the more that you did that, it seems like the the more your influence was able to spread and that you were able to uh, reach more and more people, which wasn't your original reason for doing this. Um, you were just trying to satisfy your own like internal urges. So it kind of feels like maybe without meaning to, you have like this inspirational story of, trying to just be yourself and that in trying to be yourself and continue to allow yourself to evolve that you've been able to build this amazing career not necessarily by accident but more so like through love and attention to trying to be a person that not everybody wanted you to be thanks Astrid. yeah i think for me what was inspiring about these recording is that I met you all today at times it felt like you were all friends in my living room because (laughs) (laughs) 
I've done a number of podcasts in recent weeks, and this one was particularly striking in that you guys kind of weeded out the interesting details of my life story rather than focusing on buzzwords and, you know, what does she do as a chief data scientist at Metis? You, you were interested in the person behind the title and the professional persona. And I really, really enjoyed. You made me kind of travel back to my childhood and remember things. And uh, each one of you has such a unique perspective. Like John had all these great intellectual ideas and Astrid, you were like very kind of experiential, like, okay, this is a story or this is what I experienced. This is what I'm doing, like really interesting. And Ari, you, you were more like about kind of the heart and, you know, trying to figure out the motivation and what, what is this all about and why are we doing the things that we're doing? So, yeah. And I don't know, everyone had like a very unique way of seeing things. And I really, really enjoyed that. Cool. Well, that means we're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, of all people, like you had very insightful questions. Like they were very, always well thought out. And, and that was very cool. I could see your brain working when you were like in silence. So yeah. cool. Rain is our resident philosopher. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> oh, Artie, I wanted to mention, so you were talking about how things should, you, you wish there was more art you know, to go with the science. So I have a definition of art and science uh, that comes from Garajadahi. <laughs> so his definition of science is finding similarities among things that are different. And his definition of art is finding differences among things that are similar. Interesting. I thought, I thought you might get a kick out of that. So say it again, right? Finding similarities among things that are different, that's science. Yes. Right? And then, and then the, is the opposite. Art is finding differences among things that are similar. That's interesting. I have to think about that. Yeah. I feel like I need to, I need to ponder that one a bit more, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Debbie, it's been amazing having you on the show today. It's been such a great conversation. I feel like we could talk forever. I absolutely feel the same. Seriously. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you so much, Debbie.